0: On this Lord's Day morning, I am excited to uh, to announce that we're going to begin that new series entitled The Doctrines of Grace. We've been talking about this at the end of the services for several weeks, and, and today's the day where we, we start to get into this. This morning, I'm going to, I'm planning to at least give you some definitions to define some things and to give you a brief historical overview of the doctrines of grace, over the things that we'll be studying. And then next Sunday, Lord willing, we will discuss the sovereignty of God. And then on the following Sundays, we will actually examine each of the doctrines of grace one at a time from Scripture. And then we will wrap up the series with a potluck Q&A on March 21st at like six o'clock at night, I think, or something. So we'll kind of wrap it all up with that. And that'll be a great time for you to ask the questions that you might have if you have any at all. Of course, us men will be kind of working through the same material on Monday nights beginning tomorrow night, so we're going to try to just get the whole church involved in this thing, and I think it's going to be really cool. I'd like to go ahead and pray and commit our time to the Lord before we actually get into this lecture, and I'm glad Cameron said that. This is probably, it would be more of a lecture. We're going to be covering a lot of church history. and things that took place during the Reformation. And so it's much less of a sermon and more of a lecture. You'll have more sermon type stuff coming in the following weeks as we really dive into Scripture. Today it's really a lot of history. So let's pray. Father, we thank You for this series that You have impressed upon the hearts of the elders. And we're thankful that uh, we have these truths and we're thankful that, that you've helped us to recognize them and realize them and now to teach them. And so we pray, Lord that you would make us attentive today and open our eyes and our hearts and our minds and our ears to, uh, to the actual reality of how things are and, and what has taken place and where we're at today. And so we just pray that, that we just humble ourselves that you help us through the Holy Spirit to be receptive and to listen and And uh, we just pray that ultimately, as Cameron said earlier, that you are glorified through this whole series. That's the, the ultimate intent is to bring you glory. And so we commit our time to you now, help us to understand. And we pray in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. We will begin by asking the question and then answering the question, what is the doctrines of grace? The doctrines of grace are and is and and are. They are things and then there's something in general. And so we're going we're gonna to ask this question, what is the Doctrines of Grace? Firstly, and answer that because you may not know what the Doctrines of Grace is or are. The Doctrines of Grace is a soteriology also known as Calvinism. And you're probably saying, what is a soteriology? Well, I'll get there. The Doctrines of Grace is synonymous with Calvinism and vice versa. When a person speaks of the doctrines of grace, they are usually referring to Calvinism. And when they speak of Calvinism, they are usually speaking of the doctrines of grace. And I would like to note that Calvinism is, however, broader than the doctrines of grace. It encompasses much more than just five doctrines. It's broader than that, and we will discover that as we talk about it in a little while when we talk about Geneva and whatever. But the purpose, really, of this series is to focus on the soteriology of Calvinism, to expound the doctrines of grace, not to examine every facet of Calvinism, You know, not to dive into the depths of Calvinism and and how it's like a lifestyle and all that. Really, we're just focusing on one facet of it in this series. The doctrines of grace is also referred to as the five points of Calvinism, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. Next thing we want to define is what is soteriology. Soteriology is a theological term, and what it actually means is, or is, is it is the theology of salvation. Uh, It describes how God saves sinners. Some like to call soteriology the science of salvation, which I think is, is pretty good. So when we talk about the doctrines of grace, when we talk about calvinism, remember they're synonymous, we are talking about soteriology, how God saves spiritually dead sinners. That's our focus, that's what soteriology deals with. Now we can ask the question, what are the doctrines of grace? We know that the doctrines of grace are an is and they and are as well. The doctrines of grace are five doctrines that describe basically begin by describing man's spiritual condition, and then they describe God's sovereign activity in salvation. And together, they form the acrostic tulip, which is the state flower of Holland, and that is significant, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Now, I want to just identify each of the doctrines of grace for you. We are not going to get into them in a lot of detail today. We will in the coming weeks, but you need to know what they are as we begin this series. And like I said, there's an acrostic. We begin with the T of the tulip, right? That is total depravity. We move to the U, that is unconditional election. We have an L there, right? Limited atonement. We have an I, that is irresistible grace. And then we have a P, right? the last letter in tulip, and that is the perseverance of the saints. Now, some theologians, like the author of the book that we are currently selling, you know, The Doctrines of Grace, it's in the back. Some theologians, like the author of that book, James Montgomery Boyce, they have changed some of the words because they, or at least boys, he felt that the originals were a bit misleading, the original words that were chosen during the Reformation. For instance, the phrase total depravity kind of makes it sound like man is as bad as he could possibly be. Well, we know that's not true. Man always has the potential to get worse. Amen? Right? Just when you think that humanity is getting a little bit better, it gives you a taste of how bad it is and how it's diving further and further down the wormhole. So, total depravity seems to imply that man is as bad as he can be, but in reality, man always has the potential to become much, much worse, and we've seen this throughout history, and we've even seen it in our own lives, maybe prior to our salvation, hopefully not after. supposed to be a different person. Boyce kind of throws out total depravity, and he replaces it with radical depravity, And so did other theologians. They changed it from total depravity to radical depravity. They like that better. And some of the other theologians would be like John Gerchner, who was basically R.C. Sproul's mentor. And then, of course, R.C. Sproul used that as well. Boyce also ditched limited atonement for particular redemption because to him, the word limited degraded the work of Christ. He believed that the atonement was limited in its scope, right? Not everyone gets saved, so it couldn't possibly cover everyone. He believed it was limited in its scope, but not limited or unlimited in its value, in its potential. So uh, the, the, the atonement that Christ made was like a priceless gem to Boyce. And so he didn't like the idea of saying limited around it. And so he kind of threw that out and, and changed it to Uh, from limited atonement to a particular kind of redemption that Christ did. And I like that term. Another theologian tossed tulip all together and created his own acrostic. He even added a letter. So instead of five points, there's six in his whole layout. And he went with gospel, G-O-S-P-E-L, G for God's glory, O for original sin, S for sovereign election, P for particular atonement. E for effectual grace, and then L for lasting grace. That's his whole idea there, and I think that's pretty good too, but I don't know if I can remember all those. Now, it's important to note that the changes that these men made did not impact the actual meaning of the doctrines themselves. All right, these changes were made to, in their minds, to better articulate what God has done for spiritually dead sinners, not to make the doctrines mean something else. And so the changes were made with the right motive and attitude. They didn't impact the meaning. Now, you can kind of go with your own version of it, but I like to stick to the, to the original. I like to, to, to hang on to the historicity of it and just keep things the way they are. I, like, I just prefer the historical, but I think that if you use it, the regular tulip you're going to have to give some explanation with it cuz people are going to be misled by total depravity and those sorts of that kind of phrasing so we're going to stick to the original wording in this series and when defining the doctrines of grace we must also note that calvinism the same thing it's an apologetic or a polemic it's an argument against something okay the doctrines of grace are an argument against Another, another system, another set of beliefs. And so know that Calvinism, know that the doctrines of grace are not only scriptural doctrines, but they are used as a polemic, and argument against something else. And this is where we can begin to talk about the history of Calvinism, of the doctrines of grace. To understand how and why the system of theology known to history as Calvinism, came to bear this name and to be formulated into five points, one must understand the theological conflict which occurred in Holland during the first quarter of the 17th century. Okay? In 1610, just one year after the death of a man by the name of Jacobus Arminius, he was a Dutch seminary professor, just one year after his death, Five articles of faith based on his teachings were drawn up by his students, okay? They are known as the Arminians. The Arminians, as his followers came to be called, presented these five doctrines to the state of Holland in the form of what we would call a remonstrance. Remonstrance means protest, okay? So, so you have some guys that were followers of a seminary professor who drew up five articles and said, hey, and they were essentially protesters, and they say, look, these are the views that we want in the, in the state of Holland, in the churches, and what have you. So they were making a challenge to that which was already established, the remonstrants, the Arminians. Now, the Arminian party insisted that the doctrinal statements of the church at that time, which were the Belgic Confession of Faith and the Heidelberg Catechism, they, they were insisting that those, those doctrinal statements be changed to conform to the doctrinal views contained in the remonstrance. That's a, a document that they put together. The Arminians objected to the doctrines in the Confession and in the Catechism relating to Divine sovereignty, divine sovereignty and, and human depravity, obviously unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Those are the doctrines that were in the church that they were kicking against and wanted changed, okay? Uh, it was in connection with these matters that they wanted the official standards of the Church of Holland and really all churches at that time, because all churches were Reformation churches, all churches were Protestant, all churches were Reformed. You had two options in that day. You had Roman Catholicism or you had Reformed Protestantism. The church did not start with 30,000 denominations. It started as Reformed. And so they wanted these things changed, in, in particular in Holland, and then I think going out from there. And what happened was a national synod or a council was called to meet in Dort, D-O-R-T, in Holland, in 1618 for the purpose of examining the Arminian position in the light of Scripture. The Great Synod was convened by the States General of Holland on November 13, 1618, there were 84 members and 18 secular commissioners part of this synod. And you might be asking, well, why were there secular commissioners? Why would guys and gals or whomever be, in, you know, be involved from in secular community in that? Well, the reason why is because there really wasn't any separation between church and state then. They were kind of mingled together. Uh, and, and you might think, well, that's really bizarre. Well, how do you think England's been functioning for, I don't know, century after century? The head of the church in England is the queen. So, so in, under monarchies, you usually have an intermingling of religion with state. I'm not saying that that's a good thing. I'm just saying that's how it was, and that's how secular commissioners could be involved in this process. They had an interest in these things, just as Christians did. There was a, cro- a close, in Holland, a close relationship between church and state, and I would say just like England is a reference Within this body of leadership, there were 27 delegates from Germany. Uh, There were delegates from the the, uh, Palatinate, which is the area, it's not actual Germany, but it's the area outside of Germany that's ruled by Germany. Germany was a big conqueror back then. Uh, There were delegates from Switzerland. There were delegates from England. There were basically delegates from all over Europe. This was not just a Holland thing. There were people from all over the, at that time, modern world, if you want to call it that. Over the course of seven months, the Synod held 154 sessions. They had a ton of meetings, and the last of which was on May 9th, 1619. Now, during these sessions, the Arminians presented their case before the Synod, and so did the Calvinists. That's where that term comes from. The Arminians were students of Jacobus Arminius who had recently passed away. The Calvinists were students of John Calvin who had recently passed away. We need to talk about John Calvin a little bit here because we need to establish everything we can. John Calvin was was born on July 10th, 1509 in Nyon, France, and he died on May 27, 1564 in Geneva, Switzerland. Calvin actually began as a law student. That's how he began, as a young lad, and then he kind of moved toward theology after being exposed to Renaissance humanism in Paris in 1531. Uh, This movement, which preceded the Reformation, aimed to reform uh, reform church and reform society uh, based on the model of both classical and Christian antiquity to be established by, really, a return to the Bible studied in its original languages. So this uh, Renaissance humanism sounds very foreign and outside of scripture, but it was actually in many ways a very scriptural movement. It was like, look, we're taking a look around us, we're looking at the Roman Catholic Church, we're looking at everything else, and we're realizing that everyone and everything, including religion, has deviated and gone away from the Word. So we want to not only go back to the Word, but we want to go back to it in its purest form in its original languages. That was the movement, and believe it or not, there was a guy named Erasmus who kind of sparked it, who was a Roman Catholic apologist. So it's an interesting time. This is like pre-Reformation reformation happening. And Calvin was like, I want to get a piece of that. I I, I want to know what this is about. He was fascinated by it. He he could recognize early on that the church needed some reforms. And, And this movement that he was exposed to in Paris, it left an indelible mark on Calvin. Under its influence, Calvin studied Greek, He studied Hebrew and he studied Latin, right, the three languages of ancient Christian discourse. Why? In preparation for serious study of the Scriptures. So Calvin began, right, he began by studying the languages of the Bible, not Latin per se, but but Greek and Hebrew, so that he could study the Bible in its original form and get to the heart of its meaning, This is really, really good. It's it's, it's important, I think, for seminary students to take languages. It is. I have very little training in it, but it's a good thing to do. Calvin, he left Paris because the government became less tolerant of the reform movement he supported. Okay, So now he has to leave Paris because the government's saying, hey, we're primarily Roman Catholic. We don't like this movement. You need to hit the road. So he has to leave where where he's living and, and where he's he's training in this in this theological movement. And he moves to Basil where he engaged, or Basil if you want to call it that, he moves to Basil or Basil, where he engaged in intense theological study. He while he's there in Basil, he dumps Roman Catholicism for Protestantism, which is in its earlier stages, and he begins to write For the first time because one thing that John Calvin is known for is being a prolific writer. He wrote a lot, and this is where he begins to actually start putting the pen on paper. And his first work was a preface to the French translation of the Bible, which became the first edition of the Institutes, which is what? His masterwork. After revising the Institutes, Several times, it became the single most important statement of Protestant belief. The final versions, after working them over, after Calvin worked them over, they appeared in around 1559-1560. In 1536, institutes had given Calvin some reputation among Protestant leaders While he was spending the night in Geneva, we don't know why he was there, but he was in Geneva spending the night in Geneva, the reformer and preacher William Farrell found where he was lodging and, and he goes to the hotel or motel or the house where he's lodging and he goes to visit with him and he has a visit with Calvin and he asks Calvin if Calvin would remain in Geneva to help him establish Protestantism, which was not off to a good start in Geneva. Uh, the people weren't really taking to it. They were either Roman Catholic or completely pagan, and it was just having a rocky start in in the Swiss land, if you will, in Switzerland, in in Geneva, in and around Geneva. And and so he's like, hey, man, can you stay? I mean, I know you're here for one night. Can you stay and help, help in my church, help us establish Protestantism? We need this here. Roman Catholicism isn't doing it. We need Protestantism. And calvin actually agrees to go ahead and stay i don't know if he goes to basil and gets his things and comes back we don't know that's not documented that i know of but he decides to go ahead and stay there he wants to stay there and help this guy do it and guess what start calvin's now engaging in this endeavor what methodology do you think that he went with? Think about it. You want to establish true biblical Christianity. We would call it Protestantism. That was a name given to us by the Catholics, Catholics and it's a derogatory term. Like, you're protesters, right? And we are. But, but you're wanting to kind of launch this move, movement with me, right? He's going to have him. Pharaoh's going to have him launch it. with. You would think that they would sit around and, and draw up some pragmatic plans on how to best infiltrate their community with this right you would think that well what was their methodology in doing this do you know what Calvin's methodology was Preach through the Bible line by line that was it there was no grand plan of ten things to do there was no we're gonna do this we're gonna do that we're gonna drop eggs from a helicopter we're gonna do what we can to bring people in there was none of that going on Calvin was becoming at that time an expositor of God's Word and he committed himself to that and that was the methodology I'll just preach the word as it is, and we'll apply it as it is, and we'll see what happens, right? That was his entire strategy, expository preaching. No gimmicks, no games, no pragmatism. Now you must understand that the context he enters in to do this at was insanely difficult. Geneva was an incredibly wicked city at this time. It was just unbelievable. It it was like the Vegas of its day, maybe even worse. It had literally a tavern or a bar on every corner. I mean, there was a bar everywhere. If you didn't want to go to Joe's place, you could go to Joel's place. I mean, it was just, there were bars, taverns on every corner. The city was marked by rampant drunkenness. Everyone was sauced all the time. Uh, It had several jails because people were always getting pinched for drunken publicness. And And so they had to go to a jail, and so they had to open up and build more jails. It was almost like you'd had a tavern on one corner, and right next door you had a jail. That way, when the guy came out and did something stupid, you just went into the other door, stayed the night, right? They must have had an unbelievable bail system. So Geneva was incredibly wicked, drunkenness, bars, taverns everywhere. I would say of its 10,000 citizens at the time, and we think, well, that's not very big. That's like, you know, smaller than Riverbank. Well, back in the ancient world, 10,000 people was a pretty big city. Cities weren't as big as they are uh, today, as large as they are today, especially in America. So of its 10,000 citizens, the great majority were drunkards or they were sexually immoral. They, they were doing all sorts of stuff. Another thing that Geneva was known for was for its rampant uh, expletives and cursing. Foul language. People there spoke very foul. I mean, they were dropping F-bombs before the F-bomb was created. It was, a, it was a foul place where people were drunk and cursing all the time. And another thing it was noted for, nudity. People would get drunk, get buck naked, and run down the street. They did it all the time. I mean, you'd be out there with your kids walking, and all of a sudden, some naked guy runs by. You know what I mean? You're like throwing a rock at him. I mean, it was bad. And the women there no offense, gals, but they would strip down naked too and run all over the place. It was just it was just a bizarre, sexually immoral, I mean, adultery was rampant, fornication was rampant. It was a bad situation. What I would have done, I would have talked to Pharaoh and said, well, what is Geneva like? I've only been here for one night. It's horrifically immoral. I'd say, well, I'm going back to Basel. I don't want to deal with that, you know, but he stays and he preaches the word and it was a rough and rugged city. It was very, very immoral. And after about two years of of preaching the gospel and preaching through the word line by line and calling for the townspeople to repent and, and believe the gospel, to live godly lives, right, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, those sorts of things that pastors say, what happened? Well, secular officials, primarily part of the city council at that time, they basically told Calvin to hit the road. Your moralistic preaching and, and, and all of this stuff, we, we, we don't want that here anymore. And they basically give him the boot and kick him out of Geneva. And he leaves. He, 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 he gets booted out of Geneva. And uh, he actually flees to Strasbourg, or Strasbourg Germany. And in and, and that place, when he goes to that town or that city, he actually ends up pastoring a church and he gets married while he's there. In September of 1541, Calvin was invited back to Geneva. I don't know about you, but I would have said, no, thank you. Uh, But he, you know, he's invited to come back. Somebody goes out there and talks to him in Strasbourg and says, hey, we want you to come back. And he was absolutely reluctant at first. Well, I went over there and I was preaching the word. It wasn't well received and the city official kicked me out of the city. Why would I want to go back there? But he believed that God was leading him to return and he decides to go ahead and go back, and now he's got to bring his wife with him and all that. So he was reluctant at first, but he does return. And this time, he has really the support of the city council, right? Previously, they had booted him, but maybe they had a membership change or something. And now he has the support of the city council, and they actually, one of the first things the city council did in Geneva was they enacted Calvin's ecclesiastical ordinances, uh, which What? Provided for the religious education of the townspeople, especially children. Uh, uh, They instituted Calvin's uh, conception of church order, right? Church governance, like you need elders and these sorts of things. This is why Calvin is thought of as the father of Presbyterianism because he was like one of the first guys in Protestantism to say the church is to be led and ruled by elders and stuff. So the, the city council is now working with him to make these things happen. And Calvin goes on as, as things are kind of stabilizing for him in his ministry. He just gets back into the, He literally, where he left off in the sermon series he was in in the book, he picked right back up years later and started right back up. Like he went right to the next verse. He literally did that. I think it's hilarious. That's what I would do. Why would I try to recreate the wheel? Just go back to where you were. And he picks the Bible back up and starts expository and preaching. But this time he has some support. He's got some support there. He, uh, he actually took, and this is how much of an expositor he was. It actually took him nine years to teach through the first, right, the four Gospels, right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts. Nine years. You think that I go long? That dude took nine years to teach through those first five books. He crept through scripture. He would sometimes open up the Bible, read a verse, and then go back to one word and then exposit that one word. And I mean, his sermons were mind blowing. You can get access to them, read institutes. But he was, a, he was a slow preacher. He wasn't in any hurry. He wasn't worried about getting to the next best thing. Nine years in the Gospels and Acts. Not only did he preach very slowly, expositorily, and through books of the Bible, but he also trained men for ministry. And with the help of the city council, pastors, elders, and deacons were appointed to care for the now expanding and growing church. Uh, a consistory of Reformed leaders was established, its task was to make all aspects of Genevan life conform to God's law. Okay? Imagine what that would be like. You've got secular pagan people all over the place and now they're being told by the city council, "You need to obey God's laws." <laughs> I mean that I don't think that'd go down very well, right? But this is exactly what the city council did there. It also abolished Roman Catholicism as superstition. It enforced sexual morality. In other words, if you were caught in adultery or fornication, you were punished for it. Uh, By the way, Frank Sinatra was arrested and incarcerated for cheating with some other guy's wife or cheating on his own wife. So this used to be illegal here. Don't think that's really extreme. It used to be illegal in America to go outside your marriage. You would go to jail for that. And they passed that ordinance there. They also reduced the total number of taverns in town. They went around and closed a bunch of them down. They shut them down. And then the taverns that they allowed to remain open, they regulated those taverns. And then they also, and here's where footloose comes into play, they created measures against dancing, right? They created measures against gambling, and they created measures against swearing. They were tired, you know, people were tired of walking down the street with their children hearing people, you know, using expletives and all that, and they made that illegal. So there are... Sweeping reforms. Calvin comes back, and now there are sweeping reforms going into place, guided primarily by Calvin's teaching, but really this city council. And now they're aiming to not so much as control Geneva, but, but to, to rid Geneva of all the filth and to try to, to try to direct it toward God and the gospel. That's what they're aiming to do. You may or may not agree with their methods, but this is what they were doing. Calvin was the leading French Protestant reformer and the most important figure, I would say easily the most important figure of the second generation of the Protestant Reformation. His institutes of the Christian religion and the institutional and social patterns he helped to establish in Geneva deeply influenced Protestantism elsewhere in Europe and even later in North America. The Calvinist form of Protestantism is widely thought of, uh, it's thought to have had a major impact on the formation of the modern world. Literally, this is the way that historians, even non-Christian historians see it, that that what Calvin did in his ministry and his teaching and, and the reforms and things, that God worked through him, some great, some kind of constrictive, but these things had a massive impact. Protestantism in general had a massive impact on the world as a whole later on. This is absolutely true. One thing that Calvin was known for, and if you read Institutes, you'll find this out, especially if you read his sermons, he preached on the sovereignty of God in salvation like no one else, with the exception of Jesus, really, John 6, John 10, with the exception of Paul. He preached on the sovereignty of God in salvation, probably more than any other subject. And then secondly to that would be probably predestination or election that he preached on a lot too. But those were were key doctrines that he preached on. He taught his congregation, he taught his seminary students from Scripture that men are by nature totally depraved, that election is unconditional, that the atonement of Christ is limited in its scope, that the grace that saves is irresistible, and that the saints will persevere till the end." Those doctrines are doctrines that he taught over and over and over, and he taught them right from Scripture. He taught the doctrines of grace, and the Protestant churches in Switzerland, in Holland, and throughout Europe embraced them. Why? Because they were scriptural. They were historical, in a sense, right? What I'm saying is now these doctrines predate Calvin. Earlier theologians, such as Thomas Aquinas, he was around from 1225 to 1274, and of course Augustine, he was around during 354 to 430, they taught versions of the doctrines of grace or variations of the same doctrines. In other words, they taught the same truths, but they didn't call them the doctrines of grace, they didn't call them Calvinism. Augustine actually defended the doctrines of grace against a British monk named Pelagius, Pelagius and his teachings were condemned at the Council of Carthage in 418. He was called a heretic and booted out of the church and so were his teachings and any followers they could locate. They were all excommunicated. Of course, later on they were brought back in because we're notorious for that. We do the right thing at one point, then we do the wrong thing later later on and that happened. Calvin preached Calvinism, but that's not what he called it. You know what he called it? The Bible. He didn't call it Calvinism. He just preached the Bible. He didn't call it, he didn't name anything after himself. In fact, I think if you were around today, you'd go, Why are you calling a soteriology by my name? What are you doing? He's probably spinning in his grave. He did not call it Calvinism. It's not what he called it. It was just Bible to him. His students coined the term Calvinism after his death at the Synod of Dort when they battled the students of Arminius, right? The Remonstrants, the Arminians. During the Synod, the Arminians sought to establish a new non-Calvinistic soteriology for the Church of Holland and beyond. They wanted to replace the well-established doctrines of grace with their own doctrines, their own versions. They referred to them as the five points of Arminianism. In response, Calvin's students, the Calvinists, began calling the doctrines of grace the five points of Calvinism, right? So so you've got one group that comes with their doctrines and their name, that the doctrines are named after them in a sense. Then you have the Calvinists responding to that and calling their doctrines after their name in a sense. Now, what I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna present both positions so that you can hear the differences in them. And Now, now we're going to really talk about these things in the coming weeks, so I don't want to give them a lot of time today, but I want you to to listen to the differences. I'll give you one side, then I'll give you the other side. And you need to remember this. The doctrines of grace were already established in the church at this time. Okay, What I'm telling you is these are not new doctrines that were introduced at the Synod of Dort. Augustine had taught them, Aquinas had taught them, Luther was teaching them at the same time, even earlier than Calvin. He was around during the same time. He was a contemporary, but he was a little older. These things were around. They were established. And in these days, you had two options for church. You had Roman Catholicism or you had Reformed Protestantism. There was no in-between. There were no variations. There was no Pentecostalism or any of that stuff. No denominations. You were either. Roman Catholic, or you were Reformed Protestant. So these doctrines were already established. They were already there. I would say this, and this is an important point. The doctrines of grace were defended at the Synod of Dort, not developed there. Okay, that's an important thing that we need to distinguish because those who refute the doctrines of grace, those who reject Calvinism will try to use this as an argument against them. And they'll say, well, that was a development during the 1500s. No, 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 no. That was not a development. In fact, when I get into the biblical part of it, you'll see that it's all rooted in scripture. It existed. Jesus taught these things. Paul taught these things. We see them in the Old Testament. So don't think that these things were developed here. They were defended here. Now, I want you to pretend that it's 1618, and you're in the audience at the Synod of Dort. You're there, I don't know, you're just kind of like Brian Regan, like looking around, and then all of a sudden you open this door, and you see all these people in there, and it looks like a court, and you're like, I think I'll sit down and check it out. Right, you got some popcorn, you got a Pepsi, and you're just sitting there, and you're listening to these exchanges. Now, keep in mind, there's 154 sessions, seven months. We're not going to cover everything they talked about. We're going to act like we're, we're, we're bottling it all up within just a few minutes here. So imagine with me, you're in the room, and obviously the ones who are protesting, the Remonstrants, the Arminians, they take the floor first, right? They take the floor and make their, their first argument. So imagine you see them now. There's a representative of them. He takes the floor. They begin by reintroducing a doctrine previously held by Pelagius. The guy that Augustine went toe-to-toe with. They begin by reintroducing a thought and a doctrine that had already been dealt with and called heretical hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. And what is this doctrine, this first doctrine they introduced? We will simply refer to it as free will. Free will. They argue that although human nature was seriously affected by the fall of man, Man has not been left in a state of total spiritual hopelessness or helplessness. God, they they taught this. This is what they mean by free will. God graciously enables every sinner to repent and believe, but he does so in such a manner as to not interfere with man's will or free will or freedom. Each sinner possesses a free will, and his eternal destiny depends on how he uses it. Man's freedom consists of his ability to choose good over evil in spiritual matters, or I would say that man's freedom, it it, it doesn't consist in that, but that's what they were teaching. It it consists of his ability to choose good over evil in spiritual matters. And, and, And they would say this, he is not enslaved in any way to his sinful nature. Somehow, the will of man operates outside of his sinful mind where the will resides. This is what they were teaching they would say that the, the guy would be arguing the sinner has the power to, to either cooperate with God's Spirit and be regenerated or resist God's grace and perish. The lost sinner needs uh, the Spirit's assistance. They would agree to that, but he does not have to be regenerated by the Spirit before he can believe. For faith is man's act and it precedes the new birth it comes before. They said this, faith is the sinner's gift to God. It is man's contribution to salvation. That is the very first doctrine they introduce, and we call it free will, okay? So now, uh, I don't know, Jim Smith, whatever his name is, he probably had more of a Dutch name, Flagen. he comes off the floor, that's weird, he comes off the floor, right, and now... One of the Calvinist representatives takes the floor, and he counters by reaffirming the doctrine of total depravity. And he argues that because of the fall, man is unable to believe the gospel on his own. He argues that the sinner is dead, and he's spiritually dead, he's blind, he's, and he's deaf to the things of God. He argues that his heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, desperately corrupt above all else. He argues that man's will is not free like people think it is. It is actually in bondage to his evil nature. Therefore, he will not, he cannot choose good over evil in spiritual matters. Consequently, he argues, it takes much more than the Spirit's assistance to bring a sinner to Christ. It takes regeneration by which the Spirit uh, works in the heart of this person that is what makes the sinner alive and gives him a new nature. Faith is not something man contributes to his salvation, but is itself a part of God's gift of salvation. It is God's gift to the sinner, not the sinner's gift to God. So over the course of seven months, this is what the Calvinists argue from scripture against the Armenians who are trying to use scripture to Bolster their case. Now, the Calvinist Joe Blow, he comes off the floor and an Arminian takes the floor again. What? He basically now presents the doctrine of conditional election. Uh, He argues that God's choice of certain individuals unto salvation before the foundation of the world was based on his foreseeing that they would respond to his call. Like as if God looks out over, before anything's created, he looks out over the corridors of time, he sees people responding positively to the gospel, and he says, well, I'm going to elect him, and I'm going to elect her, I'm going to elect that kid. That's what this guy is arguing. Uh, He's arguing that God selected Only those whom he knew would of themselves freely believe the gospel. Election, therefore, was determined by or conditioned upon what man would do. The faith which God foresaw and upon which he based his choice was not given to the sinner by God, but resulted solely from man's will. It was left entirely up to the man as to to the man as to who would believe and therefore as to who would be elected unto salvation. It's up to us who gets elected to salvation. God chose those whom He knew would of their own free will choose Christ. Thus, the sinner's choice of Christ, not God's choice of the sinner, is the ultimate cause of salvation. This is what the Arminian presented over the course of seven months. And, of course, now we have the Calvinists take the floor. And they counter by reaffirming the doctrine of unconditional election. They argued that God's choice of certain individuals unto salvation before the foundation of the world rested solely in His own sovereign choice, in His own sovereign will. His choice of particular sinners was not based on any foreseen response Or obedience on their part, such as faith, repentance, or anything else. On the contrary, they argued, God gives faith and repentance to each individual whom He chose. These acts are the result, not the cause, of God's choice. Election, therefore, was not determined by or conditioned upon any virtuous quality or act foreseen in men. Those whom God sovereignly elected, He brings through the power of the Holy Spirit to a willing acceptance of Christ. Thus, God's choice of the sinner, not the sinner's choice of Christ, is the ultimate cause of salvation. That's what the Calvinists argued for seven months. Now, the Arminians, I'm sure they countered that too, but now they go up and make another argument here. Or they go up and and now present the doctrine of general atonement. What? Christ died for everyone unilaterally. They argue that Christ's redeeming work made it possible for everyone to be saved, but did not actually secure salvation for anyone in particular. It's just kind of hanging out there and it's up to us to do something with it. Although Christ died for every person, only those who believe in Him are saved. His death enabled God to pardon sinners on the condition that they believe, but it did not actually put away anyone's sins. Christ's redemption becomes effective only if man chooses to accept it. Okay, So now they're arguing that point of view. And then the Calvinists take the floor and they counter by reaffirming the doctrine of limited atonement. They argue that Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect and actually secured salvation for them. Christ didn't just die in hopes that someone would believe. He died for specific people given to Him in eternity past. They argued this. It was intended to save people. His death was a substitutionary endurance of the penalty of sin in the place of certain specified sinners. In addition to putting away the sins of His people, Christ's redeeming work secured everything necessary for their salvation, including faith which unites them to Him, to Christ. The gift of faith is infallibly applied by the Spirit to to all for whom Christ died, thereby guaranteeing their salvation. Now, the the, uh, the Arminians take the floor again. We're almost getting toward the end here. They now take the floor and they present the doctrine of resistible grace, okay? Resistible grace. They argue that the Spirit calls inwardly all those who are called outwardly by the gospel invitation. He does all that he can to bring every sinner to salvation, but inasmuch as man is free, he can successfully resist the Spirit's call. The Spirit cannot regenerate the sinner until he believes. Faith, which is man's contribution, precedes and makes possible the new birth. Thus, man's free free will limits the Spirit in the application of God's saving grace. The Holy Spirit can only draw to Christ those who allow themselves to be drawn. Until the sinner responds, the Spirit cannot give life. God's grace, therefore, is resistible. It can be and often is resisted and thwarted by man. That's what the Arminian taught. That's the doctrine, a foreign doctrine that he introduces. Now the Calvinists take the floor and they counter by reaffirming the Doctrine of irresistible grace. They argue that in addition to the outward general call to salvation, which is made to everyone who hears the gospel, the Holy Spirit extends to the elect a special inward call that inevitably brings them to salvation. The external call, which is made to all without distinction, can be and often is rejected, whereas the internal call, which is made only to the elect, cannot be rejected. It always results in conversion by means of this special call the spirit irresistibly calls or draws sinners to christ he is not limited in his work of applying salvation by man's will nor is he dependent upon man's cooperation for success the spirit graciously causes the elect sinner to cooperate to believe to repent to come freely and willingly to christ God's grace, therefore, is irresistible. Not resistible, it is irresistible. It never fails to result in the salvation of those to whom it is extended. That is what the Calvinists argued against the Arminian position. And then the Arminians take the floor and present the doctrine of falling from grace. They argue that those who believe and are truly saved can lose their salvation by failing to keep up their faith. And then lastly, the Calvinists take the floor and they counter by reaffirming the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. They argue that all who were chosen by God, redeemed by Christ, and given faith by the Spirit are eternally saved. They actually used a point in Scripture that's very simple, where Jesus calls it eternal life. Eternal life means it has no end and cannot end and cannot be forfeited. They use the simple Bible teaching on that to defend this doctrine, as well as others. And they argued that, that, uh, that, that true believers, they are kept in faith by the omnipotent power of Almighty God, and thus they what? Persevere till the end. They run the race marked out for them, they make it all the way to the finish line and they go to the heaven. They do not lose their faith or forfeit it in any way, shape, or form. They may deviate from the way of God for a while, but they don't lose their salvation. That, my friends, that's the Arminian's argument, and that is the Calvinist response to it. And they were not introducing new doctrines. They were simply reaffirming what the church already believed. They were defending the doctrines of grace. Now let's just quickly summarize both positions. According to the Arminians, salvation is accomplished through the combined efforts of God who takes the initiative and man who must respond with man's response being the determining factor. God has provided salvation for everyone but His provision becomes effective only only for those who of their own free will choose to cooperate with Him and accept His offer of grace. At the crucial point, man's will plays a decisive role. Thus, man, not God, determines who will be the recipients of the gift of salvation, of the saving grace. Okay, that is, in a summary, that is the Arminian position. It it is absolutely it. Now, there's some variations because some Arminians don't like all their points, but I tell you this, that system, that soteriology is a system of logic. If you remove one point, the entire argument falls apart. If you disagree with one of those things, you know, you're, you're not holding true. And the same thing would be of the Calvinist. In fact, R.C. Sproul one time was, was debating a man and he said, well, I'm a four-point Calvinist. I, don't, I believe in all the doctrines that, that you're talking about, but I, I don't like limited atonement. R.C. Sproul responded with, so you're not a Calvinist. You can't be a Calvinist and reject any one of the points because it's a system of logic. When you remove one link, the whole chain falls apart. Now, again... Summary. We've heard the summary of the Arminians. Here's the summary of the Calvinists. Salvation is accomplished by the omnipotent power of the triune God. The Father chose and elected a people. The Son died for them. The Holy Spirit makes Christ's death effective by bringing the elect to faith and repentance, thereby uh, thereby causing them to willingly obey the gospel. Uh, The entire process Election, redemption, regeneration is the work of God and it is by grace alone. Thus, God, not man, determines who will be the recipients of the gift of salvation. There are your two summaries. Now, here's what's important. This is where the rubber meets the road. Thank you for bearing with me as I read through all that. That was like three pages. After seven months after 154 sessions, who do you suppose this diverse multinational synod sided with? Who did they rule in favor of? The Calvinists, not the Arminians. Overwhelmingly did they do this. And not only did it side with the Calvinists and say, that is the biblical argument, that is the official position of the church. And keep in mind, that's just not the position of the Holland church. That is the position of all reformed Protestant churches, which were the only Protestant churches in the world at the time. That is the official position of not only the church of Holland, but of all Protestant churches. Not of the Roman Catholics or anyone else. If there's anything else out there, there seemingly wasn't. Not only did it side with the Calvinists, But it condemned Arminian soteriology as heresy and expelled the remonstrants from Holland. It gave them the boot. It drove the Arminians out of Holland, said, don't come back. It also developed what is known as the Canons of Dort, a remarkably scriptural and balanced document on the specific doctrines that were dealt with at the Synod. The Canons of Dort is sometimes called the Five Articles Against the Remonstrance. It's a wonderful doctrinal statement that just affirms the things that they hammered out during this conference. The doctrines of grace were adequately defended by Calvin's students and the Synod. Thomas Aquinas and Augustine would have been proud of their, these guys' solid biblical exegesis. They would have been proud of their skillful polemics, right? They had the ability to argue Scripture kindly and rightly and accurately, and yet the victory at Dort was in many ways a victory for every Protestant church in Europe. But that victory was short-lived. Arminianism was not destroyed. It lingered like cancer cells. It grew slowly. In 1630, the remonstrants were allowed to return to Holland. In 1634, they started a school of theology in Amsterdam of all places called Remonstrant Seminary. In 1798, Arminianism was officially recognized and legitimized by the Dutch government. Now, let's talk about the tentacles of this heresy. Arminianism eventually made its way, of course, it spread throughout Europe, primarily to England, but it eventually made its way to America in roughly the 1730s. And, and I would say that there were a number of, of foreign preachers who had come here who introduced it. One in particular is a man by the name of John Wesley, whom I actually really like a lot of his sermons. I don't like his soteriology, it's Arminian, but he was a phenomenal evangelist and a great preacher in many ways. And my hero during that time was Whitfield, and Whitfield had tremendous, George Whitfield had tremendous respect for Wesley. But he came over here with his Methodistic ideas and his Arminianism and he started preaching it and he started doing these sorts of things and spreading that Arminianism. It really began with him. Uh, A little later, you had Charles Grandison Finney. Uh, He was 1792 to 1875. He was around really for the Second Awakening or Great Awakening. Um, He was the inventor of the altar call, right? Like, man, if you feel like the Lord wants to save you, pray this prayer. It kind of started with him. It didn't look like that, but it was a version of it back then. He is the inventor of the altar call. He is considered by many the father of modern revivalism. And guess what? He was a staunch Arminian. He was actually an American. He started as a pre- he was an American, but he started as a Presbyterian and then kind of moved more toward Wesley's theology. And guess what? I mean, he had far more influence and impact on American evangelicalism then than Wesley ever even came close to having. This guy spread this stuff like you can't imagine. Now, fast forward 140-some-odd years to our day, and Arminianism is absolutely the prevailing soteriology in American evangelicalism. Pick a notable American preacher, and I bet he's Arminian, D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, A.W. Tozer. Jay Vernon McGee, Chuck Smith, the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement, Billy Graham, Charles Stanley, Tony Evans, Greg Laurie, Rick Warren, all, all Arminian, all Arminian. Pick a denomination, and I bet it's Arminian. The Charismatic Movement, the Baptist Movement, the Methodist Movement, all Arminian, all of them, all the way through. Doesn't mean there aren't some spots of Calvinism there, but for primarily... They are Arminian. What am I saying to you? You know, what started there and what was condemned and then brought back and then began to spread comes to America. What? uh, Arminian soteriology now in America is extremely popular and pervasive. It's literally everywhere. But just because it's popular and pervasive and in almost every church doesn't make it right. We need to remember that it was condemned as heresy in Augustine's day. The version then was called Pelagianism. And it was later condemned as heresy at the Synod of Dort. But here's the deal, okay, just because it's heresy, and there's a lot of people that, 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 that affirm it and believe it, and great, a great many people in America, American evangelicals don't even know what they believe. If you were to say they're an Armenian, they would say, I'm not Armenian; I'm French. No we're not talking about an ethnicity, we're talking about a soteriology. I mean back when I first started out, I started out as an Armenian. everyone basically does. And I was preaching my, my view of John three sixteen. He died unilaterally for everybody. It's up to us to do something with it. And I had a guy say, you're teaching Arminianism. And I said, I'm French. I'm not Armenian. No, Arminian. Most people have no clue. Why do you think we're doing this series? They don't know. They don't even know what they believe or why they believe it. They just believe it. Arminian soteriology is extremely popular in America, and one of the reasons why I think is because it's, it's very humanist, it's very man-centered, and America is the most man-centered country in the world. But that doesn't make it right. We need to remember that it was condemned as heresy. But we need to be careful not to harshly criticize or condemn our Arminian brothers and sisters in Christ. One can be Arminian and a true Christian at the same time. This is how I started out, right? Uh, I love that R.C. Sproul said, everyone, everyone is born a humanist at birth. Everyone is born an Arminian. And that is utterly true. Now, I must say this, and I'm warning us to be careful on how we treat people. That's the context here. The one blight on Calvin's legacy that comes to mind is his involvement in the prosecution of Michael Servetus, a Spanish theologian. Servetus was a universalist and he was a staunch anti-Trinitarian, okay? He believed that all religions somehow lead to salvation and to God and that the Trinity is unbiblical and deceptive. Today he is hailed as the father of Unitarian Universalism, that's a popular cult in America. When Servetus arrived in Geneva in 1553, it was already like a powder keg in the city. There were French refugees entering in droves because of persecution. The French government had been cracking down on Calvin's followers, the Huguenots. So they left France and fled to Geneva to seek refuge. Many Genevans saw this as an invasion and they protested. We don't want all these French foreign nationals coming in here. We we want to keep it mostly Swiss. We don't want all these people coming. They were upset. It was an invasion in their minds. And they were also mad about the religious rules imposed on them by the city council, and they thought it was John Calvin's doing. Tensions had become so high in the city at this time that even the tiniest of spark would have ignited total unrest, full anarchy. Okay, so that's, your, that's what's going on in the city. When Servetus came and started preaching his twisted heresies, he became that tiniest of sparks. His ministry made things a thousand times worse in Geneva. People were being thrown into theological confusion on top of everything else. The city council immediately recognized that he was a dangerous heretic and agitator. They issued a warrant for his arrest and Servetus was picked up and thrown into jail. Now Calvin was the, not a, the religious leader in Geneva and his theological expertise was needed for this trial. He agreed to serve as a prosecutor, during which he pleaded with Servetus multiple times to recant, look, denounce your heresies, affirm biblical truth, you'll make things better for yourself. But Servetus was totally and absolutely stubborn. He dug in his heels and rejected Calvin's multiple invitations. He was eventually convicted and sentenced to die by burning at the stake. Calvin attempted to persuade, even at that point, Servetus to opt for a less painful mode of execution. He said, man, don't be burned by the stake. That's the worst possible thing. At least pick something that's less painful. But even then, Servetus stubbornly refused his invitations to accept some other form of, of execution. It's really kind of a sad tale, and it mystifies me as to how Calvin would, would involve himself in it. It's, it's kind of a weird scenario. Um, but it happened nonetheless. Arminianism is a dangerous heresy, in my opinion. It really is. It might not be as dangerous in our minds as universalism or anti-Trinitarianism, but it's still dangerous. Uh, A favorite evangelistic tool of Arminians is the sinner's prayer. You know, pray this prayer and you'll be saved. Paul Washer once said, the sinner's prayer has put more people in hell than anything else. Why is that? Because people pray a prayer and they're trusting in the prayer they made rather than in the Savior they prayed to. They have a false assurance because they prayed some kind of silly prayer. That's an example of how dangerous Arminianism is because it uses that mechanism as an evangelistic tool. But we need to understand even though Arminianism can be very dangerous, we are not to be dangerous toward Arminians. We are not here to prosecute them. Instead, We should preach the truth in love to them and pray fervently for them." But as I said, the majority of them don't even know what they are. Now there is a battle, I'm I'm getting toward the end here, there is a battle being waged over soteriology. There is. It is a theological battle between the orthodox and the unorthodox, those who keep the doctrines of grace and those who don't. The question is, should we engage in it? Yes, we should. Why? because there's a lot at stake. Evangelicalism in America is on the line. In fact, Boyce argues in his book that the only thing that can resurrect evangelicalism is the doctrines of grace. We need to get back to what Scripture actually teaches about salvation. I kind of agree with him. You'll read that in the book if you buy it. I say more importantly, the gospel is on the line. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon, my famous, easily my famous preacher uh, besides maybe Paul and, and Jesus, he was a, a Baptist preacher in 19th century London. Listen to how he defined the doctrines of grace. All right, He said this, "'I have my own opinion that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and Him crucified unless we preach what is nowadays called Calvinism. It is a nickname to call it Calvinism. Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. I do not believe we can preach the gospel unless we preach the sovereignty of God and His dispensation of grace.' Not unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah. Nor do I think that we can preach the gospel unless we base it on the special, particular redemption of his elect and chosen people, which Christ wrought out upon the cross. Nor can I comprehend a gospel which lets saints fall away after they are called and allows the children of God to be burned in the fires of damnation after having once believed in Jesus such a gospel I abhor. He hated the American version or the Arminian version of the gospel. What Spurgeon is essentially saying is that the biblical gospel and Calvinism are identical because both declare that, the, uh, that salvation is the work of God from beginning to end. God is the active giver. He chooses, He draws, He saves, and He keeps. It is all His doing, anything less, and it is not the gospel Spurgeon says. If churches are Arminian rather than Calvinistic, and they are, that's the majority in America. If they are Arminian rather than Calvinistic, and the gospel and Calvinism are synonymous, the same, what gospel are these churches preaching? They are preaching an Arminian version of the gospel which is not entirely true to Scripture. They are preaching a man-centered gospel, not the God-centered gospel of the Bible. And we sit back and look at the state of American evangelicalism in America, and we wonder why it's in such decline. The minute that you make American evangelicalism about humanism, it's going to decline. In fact, another point that Boyce argues in his book is that the natural course, the, the evolution of Arminianism, the end result is liberalism. And that's something that we see pervasively in churches in America. They are preaching, and I say this with all the love in my heart, a man-centered gospel, a gospel where man is in charge, a gospel where man is sovereign, a gospel where man's will is exalted above the power of the divine. Man is exalted above God in this system. I don't care which way you spin it. And that's why American evangelicalism is in such a sad state. Now, those are reasons to, to engage in this battle for soteriology, but I'd say there's one more. Most importantly, we should engage in the battle over soteriology because the glory of God is at stake. God is not glorified by a soteriology, a gospel that exalts man. <laughs> he is glorified by a soteriology and gospel that follows the Bible and exalts Himself. Arminianism cannot under any circumstances do this properly. It gives credit to sinners when no credit is due, and it denies that salvation belongs to the Lord. Psalm 3.8, what Bruce read earlier. Now, I believe in closing and wrapping up, I believe the most effective way to extinguish Arminianism, and I don't think it'll be fully gone until Jesus returns, obviously, but I think one way to extinguish it is to teach the doctrines of grace. Calvinism from its original source, Scripture. If it worked for Augustine, if it worked for Calvin's students at Dort, it can work for us too, can't it? It did work. As Christians, we are obligated to know, believe, live, share, and defend the truth. And this requires a lot of study. We need to know the truth if we're going to defend it. We need to know the doctrines of grace if we're going to defend them. We need to know what true Calvinism is. It's biblicalism. We need to know these things. And this requires a lot of study, a lot of prayer. And this is why we are doing this series. In the coming weeks, I will do my best to carefully expound each of the doctrines of grace from Scripture. But before we do this, we must first discuss the sovereignty of God, because it is the foundation on which the doctrines of grace stand. It is the bedrock of Calvinism. It is the bedrock of biblical soteriology. Amen?